Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. This week, I have an energizing conversation with Victor Hoskins, President and CEO of Fairfax County Economic Development Authority. Listen in to find out how Victor's upbringing influenced him, the emphasis he placed that his mother placed on his education, and the many successes and challenges Victor has had along the way, most especially the win that he was a part of in bringing Amazon HQ2 to Arlington and Alexandria, which became a win for the entire region. Victor has received numerous awards, including in 2019, being recognized by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments for his collaborative leadership. There is a lot to learn from Victor Hoskins. His optimism and his energy by themselves will lift you up. So here is my conversation with Victor Hoskins. Victor Hoskins, welcome to Partnering Leadership. So thrilled to have you on. Glad to be here, Mahan. Glad to be here. Now, Victor, all of us are impacted by the place we grow up and the time we grow up. So let me know a tiny bit about whereabouts you grew up and how that impacted who you've become. Yeah, so I began my life on the south side of Chicago. And for people who know Chicago, the south side is predominantly African-American. I grew up part of my life in a public housing project called the Dearborn Homes. They actually are still standing. They were just recently renovated, recently being in the last decade. And they're right behind the Illinois Institute of Technology. Uh, that was a campus that was right near us. But in any case, my, I was raised primarily by my mother with my other five brothers and sisters. My father passed away when I was a year old. So she was really a person that we kind of had mother and father for, for many years. And then... I spent my high school years in Southern California. We moved to Southern California. My mother remarried later on in life, and um, we moved to Southern California, and I went to high school there. So I think that the real shaping of my life, though, happened in Chicago because, you know, living in Chicago, living on the South Side, understanding transportation, because really, even in Chicago, the young kids take transportation. It's amazing. Either you're on the L, or Illinois Central, or the bus. So you can get around the city pretty easily. And then in Chicago, there were a lot of free uh, museums. So the Museum of Science and Industry, the Shedd Aquarium, all these, you know, the Museum of Natural History, the Chicago Museum of Art, all of these assets were always available for kids. So I went to them all the time. I spent most of my time in the summer um, actually in the museums. And I think it really shaped the way that I understood a city. And I think most of all, though, the skyline of Chicago. Because even when I was a kid, the skyline of Chicago was mighty. I think Chicago is probably the only city in the United States where people um, can quote a planner. Often people quote Daniel Burnham, and he's the one that really did the, the redesign of Chicago. This was after the Chicago fire. It was roughly the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America, and it was a World's Fair. But Chicago was a whole new city at that time. It had risen from its ashes, but... He used to say, make no small plans. They have no magic to, ser- to really stir men's souls. And that kind of quote, that kind of thinking is what I grew up with as kind of a backdrop to almost everything that I did. 
Now, Victor, by almost all counts, you are an extremely successful person. So would you say that growing up in the projects had an influence on your eventual success? <laughs> yeah, I would say it did. <laughs> I think I think there are a couple of things that, you know, when, when you grow up in public housing, there are a couple of things that you, that, that at least I remember. Number one, I remember, you know what? It's hard being poor. Number two, education was a route out of the projects to success. And my mother always said that to us. And we were the first generation to go to college. My mother was Italian, father African-American. And we were first generation really from both to go to, to college. So she really hammered that into us. We all believed in it. Everybody in my family spent some time in college. My brother Jesse was probably the pioneer. He did, I think, accounting and marketing. And then I had a brother, Chris, he did his bachelor's and master's in, in art at the Art Institute of Chicago. And I was the last one. I was the trailer. I was the last child, one out of six. But then understanding that if you're going to change your condition, you really have to work for it. And that work is really what I put into it. And that's what I really learned is that everybody needs to work. I remember my brother, Jesse, even when I was like three or four years old, I remember him going to work. As a matter of fact, at IIT. He was a dishwasher at IIT. He would bring his check home and hand it to my mother. I mean, it was like everybody was on board. My sister was working. She was, I think she was like 13 or 14 years old. But we all worked early. Um, we all worked very hard. I started, I think I had a paper route at age nine. I opened up a paper stand at 10. I started a grocery delivery business while I was running. I did my paper stand on Sundays and that's freed me up for the week. So I was delivering groceries during the week. And this was all after school. So, you know, really being entrepreneurial, understanding that everybody needs to work, that work is good. Listen, if I wanted to go to the movies, I had to have money. And if I was going to have some money, I needed to work. So I think that understanding that poverty can happen to anybody and that they're great people everywhere. There were fantastic people in my public housing project. And then when we moved to working class neighborhood later on, there were great people in that neighborhood. So great people are everywhere and you can find role models everywhere. And that's what I did. I looked for role models. I looked for people who were doing things I wanted to do. I have to tell you this story about, about ties. This is, a, this is one of those things that, you know, that, that I do remember. I think I was about nine or 10 years old and I was doing my paper route. I came home late in the evening in the winter, it was freezing. And my mother said, so, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, you know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be like Mr. Ice. So there was this guy across the street, Mr. Ice and Mrs. Ice, wonderful family of four. Uh, they had four kids and the two of them. And, and he would go to work every day with a tie on and with a briefcase. I'd see him walk out of his house you know, with his tie on and his suit and he'd hop in his, his fury and he'd drive up his green fury to work. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. His, his wife was a really wonderful lady. His kids were really cool. And they always had something interesting that they were doing. So I said, that's what I wanted to be. I want to be like Mr. Ice. And Mr. Ice wore a tie to work. And so for me, the kind of summary of Mr. Ice was, I wanted to wear a tie. So I wanted to wear a tie to work. So when these kids stopped wearing ties to work, it kind of freaked me out because it was just the opposite <laughs> of what I thought success was. That's wonderful visualization, though. You knew from the beginning where you wanted to be, how you wanted to work. Now, Victor, how does a kid growing up in the south side of Chicago and the projects and then through L.A. end up at Dartmouth? 
Well, you know, I was very fortunate in that when my mother remarried, my stepfather wanted to move to Southern California. And moving to Southern California actually was a great opportunity for me because instead of living in the inner city of Chicago, I was all of a sudden in the suburbs. Almost everything is a suburb in Los Angeles. I mean, it's just one big, massive. The county is 4,200 square miles. The city is 420 square miles. It's just massive. So we were about 20 miles outside of, of LA in a suburb and boy, it was really an easy place to live in. I mean, relative to the toughness of a city like Chicago, it was a very kind place to children. You, you felt safe all the time. You always were able to get to resources. And the high school I went to was amazing. It was the most fantastic high school that, that I could imagine going to. And I went there for all four years. There was only two weeks I didn't go there. Two weeks I went to Chicago Vocational High School, which was not a very good high school in Chicago. The rest of my high school career I spent at Monrovia High School, which was amazing. And by amazing, I mean that the teachers loved to teach. Uh, not all kids love to learn, but the, most of the kids love to learn. And I guess I tested well. So when I tested, I did those standardized tests. I came out at the upper end of, of the statistical curves. And that put me in this gifted group of classes, which meant that I got a lot of attention. These classes were very small. I mean, most of the classes in, in the high school were probably 20, 30, you know, 40 kids. Our classes were 10 and 11, 12 at the most. And we really had a lot of resources made available to us. I guess they would be the AP classes today. But in those days, they were mentally gifted minors is what they called us. I don't know where they got that term from. But, but it, was, it was fabulous in that you could do research. And I had the opportunity to research. And, and strangely enough, I went to summer school every year. Even, even in the first year of high school, I went to summer school because I loved school that much. I just enjoyed it that much. And so I would go to summer school and I would take you know, math courses and geometry courses and anything that I was interested in accelerating because I like math and science. And that, I think, discipline also allowed me to really focus on just being prepared for the, I guess, the academic world. And, and, and it just got better because I also stayed out of trouble by playing football. So between football and the academics, all my time was absorbed. And that's really what I, what I focused on. And all of that ended up helping me come out at the top of my class. I was a scholar athlete. You know, I was very fortunate. I was on four championship teams during my time there, which was really fabulous. So you, you get this winning spirit from the athletics. I started every year. So I, I, was, I was one of the star athletes, but I was also star in academics. And those two things really, I guess, were a formula for me to for success. And because we were going to the suburbs didn't make us rich. I mean, I, I was getting subsidized lunches. I mean, I, I ate free lunches for the four years I was in high school. I mean, we were, we were still poor, but technically poor. I didn't feel poor. I mean, maybe I didn't live in a great house, but I didn't feel poor. I, I felt like what I had was a lot of opportunity in front of me, and I just wanted to take advantage of it. And pushing really hard on the academics and understanding that that would equate eventually into something good, which my mother always told me, and it did. When I, when I applied to schools, actually, schools wrote me to recruit me. And I ended up having a, a stack of acceptances. I had like 11 different universities uh, gave me admission with full scholarships from UC Berkeley to Georgia Tech, from Notre Dame to Dartmouth. 
And I had this list in front of me and I was trying to figure out where to go to school. I mean, look, if you were going to go to school and it was going to be a free ride, you really wanted to pick the right place. And I had a teacher that was pushing me to go to Pomona College in Claremont. It's one of the Claremont colleges. They call it the Ivy League of the West. And I was really seriously thinking about going there, but it was kind of close to home. It was, it was like 35 miles from my house and that seemed too close to me. So I was thinking landing in UC Berkeley, but I called my brother up before I made a decision. And my brother, Jesse, he's probably the most knowledgeable in my family about, you know, about success. He was always successful. And he said, read the list to me. So I started going through the list. I think the third or fourth school I said to Dartmouth, he said, you can stop right there, forget the rest, go there. <laughs> I said, do you know where this place is? And he said, yeah, yeah, I do know where it is. I said, it's in the middle of the forest. They just had equal access for women like two years ago, dude. I don't know if I want to go to a school like that. He goes, Victor, he said, you go to that school and your life will never be the same. He said, you're not going to school to be comfortable. He said, you're going to school to grow. You're going to school to make a difference. And he said, and the most difference can be made by going to a school like that. So go. He said, it's going to be hard. You're not going to like some of it, but go. And I always followed my brother's advice. So I went and it it turned out to be a, a really great experience. What fabulous advice. And I know both your mom and your brother have had a significant impact on you, Victor. But also when you think about you were in the gifted program, but you were also in the hard worker program a gifted student that was taking summer school along with all the sports activities that you had was going through summer school. So gifted and hard worker. So you end up studying urban studies, go on to MIT for real estate. I haven't run into too many high school students that say, I want to go to a top college and I want to study urban studies. What what drove you to study urban studies? Well, you know, it's interesting. They, it, when you're a freshman at Dartmouth, there is this thing called the Dartmouth Plan, which gives you a lot of flexibility in when you can go because it's on the quarter system. And one of the things that they had that was required was every freshman had to take this thing called freshman seminar. And when I went to take my freshman seminar, I had this friend down the hall from me where there was an upperclassman. His name is Walter Callender. He was a year before me. So he was upperclassman, big guy, a sophomore. <laughs> he made it the first year. That was big enough for me. And I needed some advice. And I said, listen, I'm trying to pick my, my freshman seminar. He said, I said, where should I go? Which one should I take? And he goes, he goes, well, take something that you're interested in. I said, well, And I went through the catalog and there were only a few things that I was interested in. And I said, which one did you take? He said, well, I took urban studies. And I go, that sounds cool. What was that like? He said, well, it was on future cities. He's all about future cities. And I go, oh man, that sounds like that's right up my alley. I love cities. I mean, you know, even though I'd gone to school, high school in the suburbs, I'd love cities. So I said, yeah, why don't I do that? And when I took the class, it was one of those classes that really gave me an interesting view of the world because It was really about, there were, I think, six books, and you had to write a paper on each of the book. It was a paper every two weeks. The books were all about future concepts of communities and cities, like Walden Pond, Walden Two, there were Compact City, and these were all futuristic ideas. It was like the Compact City was all about 250,000 people located in a circular structure, only occupying about one square mile, leaving all the rest of the land fallow. I mean, it was like, you know, those kinds of concepts, but it was really more about thinking, you know, how do you think about cities? And then there there were some classics in it, but, and what I wanted to do really was I really wanted to change cities. And I was interested in design and how design affected behavior, because I've 
felt that the design of the projects, the public housing projects, really impacted how people felt about the, themselves and about the place. There were a lot of, I thought, physical signals there that were very negative, as opposed to when we moved to the, our working class neighborhood, there were a lot of physical characteristics that were positive. So I, I did do urban studies, and I did pursue, you know, looking in, into redevelopment. Actually, I worked at the Boston Redevelopment Authority for a term. I actually taught in an inner city school in uh, Pasadena, California for a term. So I took terms where I had these experiences in the urban environment. But when I studied, I was studying primarily how these physical environments affected behavior because that was really what I was interested in. But as I became a senior, I, I started moving more toward the economics of urban development. And that's really how I got interested in real estate. And so when I went to MIT, I decided to focus on real estate and real estate finance as my discipline, because I felt like that would give me the strongest set of tools for being a professional in real estate development, because ultimately that's really what I wanted to be involved with. No wonder you have been so successful. You have such a broad both perspective from your personal experience, but also educational experience that supports economic development. Now, what brought you down to DC? So my wife and I moved from California 20 plus years ago now. I went to Southern Cal after I finished my graduate degree um, at MIT. And there I first started working for the Los Angeles Urban League. And then I worked in uh, private real estate development for a publicly traded real estate company called New Holland and Farm. And then I worked for a private investor for three years. So I had a lot of great experiences, but the one that I really enjoyed was economic development manager for the city of Long Beach. And that's where I met Jim Hankla. And I need to mention Jim Hankla before I come to the East Coast because Jim Hankla was probably the most influential person in my professional career. He's one of the few people that I think really understood me. When I first met him, first of all, I, wanted, I heard about him, read about him, and then I wanted to meet him, and then I wanted to work for him. That's kind of how it went. I left the, the private investor and I, I went to work for Hankla, and I did that for four years. And while I was working for him, I really got a chance to meet someone that I wanted to be. And by that, I meant he really wanted to shape cities and change them for people's overall good. That was really his focus. And economics was his tool to get there. And what he explained to me is something that I didn't even understand about myself. He said, you think you're motivated by money, but you're not. He said, you're motivated by achievement. That's what's going to set you apart. You really have to continually remind yourself that it's not about money. It's about others. And it's about what you achieve on their behalf. It's not your personal achievement. He said, I know this about you because you didn't never come here from where you were working before. You just stayed there and made a bunch of money. He kind of helped me realize that there is this thing inside of me. It's not inside of everyone. I mean, some people just want to build a big company and make a bunch of money. And I think that's cool too, because then you can be a philanthropist. I mean, oh my God, I think people like David Rubenstein, amazing, okay? That dude is like amazing. Talk about my idol or Bloomberg. That's even a closer one. I mean, these guys have gone out and they've just decided to do things in the public interest, even though they've become wealthy. That wasn't the way I was going to do it. The way I was going to do it is directly. So we move here because my daughter was about to go to high school and my daughter was nerdy like my wife and I, and the Los Angeles school system was not kind of nerd. And we felt like we either we were going to move into a Beverly Hills zip code and get her into Beverly Hills high school, or we were going to move out of 
Southern California. And we decided to move out of Southern California. And that's how I ended up in Baltimore, where I worked as executive director for the, uh, the Baltimore Tech Council. It was a Greater Baltimore Committee Tech Council that I ran. And then you had experience as deputy mayor in D.C., Prince oh, yeah. George's oh, yeah. County. Yeah. You're one of the unique individuals in this region. For a lot of people that don't understand Washington, D.C. area, is that there is a real big river between Maryland and Virginia that sort of people don't cross that river if they can avoid it. And then D.C. is separate from the two of them. But you're one of the unique individuals that has had senior level experience in all three jurisdictions here. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. When I was in Maryland, I was asked to be part of the cabinet of Governor Ehrlich. And I ran housing and community development for the state. And that was a fantastic experience. Being a Democrat in a Republican administration was a very unique position to be in. In the cabinet, it's even more interesting. But it was a fabulous experience. And I think what happened was through that, I developed a reputation for getting big things done in a very short period of time. We did 35,000 housing opportunities in three years and six months, and that had never been done in history. And that ended up helping me get the position in D.C. D.C. was in trouble in 2011. The developers couldn't find equity or debt or couldn't borrow to build. Everything had drawn to a standstill. And Mayor Gray asked me to join his administration. He said, Victor, get these projects going. So that's what I did. I had a great time doing it. There was a, we had a magnificent team. He was an amazing leader. Again, that work ethic. The, the, the thing is, to me, at the core of everything that I've been able to do has been a strong work ethic. I believe in hard work. I think hard work is fabulous. I think hard work is just good for your spirit, but it's also good for making you tough in the tough times because the tough times come. Like these are tough times now. And frankly, I was built for tough times. I'm looking for them. I, I want them to come up on me because that's what I want to fix. I mean, that was what DC was all about. We were able to do the wharf, the city center, shops of the Dakotas, O Street Market, Union Market, just fabulous projects. And then going to Arlington, they had lost 34,000 employees. Their vacancy rate had gone from 10% to 21%. And they were in a, a basic disaster. And where did I do, go? I went to Arlington to fix Arlington. I love <laughs> fixing the big problems. And, you know, we did Lidl, we did Nestle, Gerber, Grant Thornton, CGI, Accenture, Cap One Innovation Center, and capped it all off with HQ2, Amazon HQ2 headquarters, 37,000 jobs and $2.5 billion investment. What a great thing to be involved with. And then two tech campuses, a billion dollar Virginia Tech campus and a half a billion dollar George Mason University Tech campus all at once. I mean, for me, it was fabulous. And, and I had a great team. Like you said, these, are, these things are done by teams. They're not done by individuals. But the leader has to keep the direction straight, has to have the North Star in view all the time and can't tire because it's a long haul. It's a marathon. In the marathon, you can lose sight of the fact that the race is going to end. You can just feel the pain in your bones and in your muscles and not think about the end. And the leader keeps the end in mind regardless. I do want to go into the Amazon win in a minute, Victor. But one of the things, you, you have already shared a lot of pearls of wisdom with respect to leadership. But one of the things that I really hope the listeners get out of this is your attitude and perspective lifts everyone around you up. So I absolutely adore that about you because you can't help but be optimistic about the future. Being surrounded by people like you or having a leader like you 
lead the organization even in tough times as it is today. It's that attitude that really infests and infects the entire organization on a, for, on a positive front. But onto the Amazon win, I was actually just on a call and people were talking about the different reasons why New York ended up not being able to make it. Because there are all a lot of different interests and the interests started a circular shooting squad and ended up killing the New York's chances. What did you and the rest of the team do to make sure that that would become a win, both for Arlington and I would say it is a real win for this entire region? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Th- thank you, Mahan. And I appreciate your, your comments about my optimistic view of the world because I am an eternal optimist. My mother says I've been that way my whole life. She said I would wake up first thing in the morning and a big old smile on my face. And it's hard to get a smile off of my face because I'm just delighted to be alive. But getting back to the Amazon experience and the kind of the why New York kind of lost the opportunity and we were able to keep our hands on it and, and embrace the opportunity. I think that there were a couple of things at play. Number one, the team in Arlington and in Alexandria really was a collaborative team. It wasn't just us in Arlington. It wasn't just Alexandria fighting for it or us fighting against one another for it. And even the state was involved with both of us in partnership. So I think that the fact that it was a collaboration made it strong. You know, it was a big team. That wasn't just us in Arlington. I mean, we really didn't have a big enough team to win it alone. We had to have a bigger team. So I think that that was part of it. I don't know how New York viewed it, but that's how we viewed it. We viewed it as a team effort. So that was, that's part of it. And then understanding that you really need to keep everybody that has a stake involved informed as much as you can. And we worked really hard at that. We were purposeful about what we put in the public and what we kept private. There were some things we couldn't reveal because we were under a non-disclosure agreement. But anything that we could reveal, we did reveal. And I think that through the years, you know, I'd, I'd been at Arlington almost three and a half years at that point, almost four years, and they had seen me in action and they had learned to trust me. And they had learned to trust my judgment. And they knew that there wasn't going to be a bait and switch and that I was going to fight in their interests. One of the first things that I, I said, I said this to the state. I said this to the local leaders. I said this to my leaders. I said this to my team. I said, we're not buying this deal. I said, somebody can buy it and they can have it. I'm not involved in that. I am not going to be involved in that. I do not want to be involved in that because that's a totally lose proposition. I said, because someone out there is going to do something crazy, like offer, you know, multi-billion dollar package. I got to tell you, I don't want to be part of that. And by the way, I don't think that's going to be good for the company. And I do not think it's good for our community. I said, we have a lot of power here in our community. We have incredible schools. We have amazing transportation. We have incredibly planned and really available inventory and an opportunity to grow. So for us, it was more place that had already been created and really molding that place and listen, informing the elected officials because they have a stake in this. You cannot leave them out. Informing the community as much as possible because they have a stake in this. You cannot leave them out. And I took criticism from both sides, I must admit, from even my team members at times criticized me. But what I was trying to do is strike a balance. And I think in all of this, in this business of economic development, you always have to strike a balance because as I used to tell everybody that I tell them two things that they had to remember. Number one, steady wins the race. Speculation leads to poverty. 
So that's one thing I would tell them. And the second thing I would tell them was this, we cannot win alone. We have to win in partnership. If we went alone and it's all to our credit, what have we done? We've done something for ourselves. But when we win it together, we win it as a team, we win it as a collaborative, we've done it for the community. And I was serious when I said, and I told this to Amazon, the Amazon negotiators, I said, look, if your deal has to go to Alexandria, I'm fine with that. I said, let it go to Alexandria. I can live with that. I said, that's fine with me. And then Stephanie Landrum from Alexandria said this, and if it goes to Arlington, I'm good with that. And they looked at each other. I know they were like, these people are crazy. No, we were both very serious because this is what we knew. The opportunity was so big that it really didn't matter where it landed. You know, 37,500 employees. I mean, actually at that time, it was 50,000 that we were looking at because remember they cut it in half. So it was 50,000. But you know, you're looking at numbers like that, 4 million square feet. Look, you cannot lose. You could be within 30 miles of the place and you were going to win something. So that was the attitude that we took in. And that we felt like it, both of us, and I think our teams felt this way, that it was more important for the region to win this thing than for any individual jurisdiction to win. And when it all turned out that we won, we felt blessed. Alexandria, we helped them. We fought for their, their Virginia Tech campus. And then we ended up getting, you know, a half billion dollar George Mason University campus. So everybody won. And by the way, the region's winning now. I mean, tomorrow Amazon is going to be like launching like a thousand recruiters and 20,000 coaching sessions. We all win. We all win. It is absolutely a big win for the entire region, Victor. And the way you and other key people led in the process made sure that we all became winners rather than becoming losers. Now, you have all these wins in Arlington, lots of them. Amazon was just one of them. You mentioned Nestle. You mentioned some, some others. And you take on the responsibility at Fairfax. What drew you to that opportunity? The first time they, they came to recruit me, I stepped out of the process. I said, I'm not really that interested. And the reason why is that I really wanted to work on the region. The second time they called me and I did go through the process, they were very clear that they wanted to see a collaboration. And one of the things that I've always envisioned was a united regional entity, or even if it was just an alliance, just an alliance, an alliance is a big deal, but something that was in the form of we were working together. And when I took the Fairfax job, so Fairfax is the second largest office market, a suburban office market in the United States. It's 118 million square feet. The only larger one is in Orange County, California. So it's huge. 1.2 million people. It's the largest jurisdiction south of Philadelphia and north of Atlanta. Okay, so it's a big job. 400 square miles. They have offices, five overseas and one in California. So it was a big job. But in that big job was also big influence on the tone within um, Northern Virginia. And I realized as I was going through the interview process that from that seat, I could help forge an alliance um, working with people like Stephanie Landrum from Alexandria, working with people like Christina Wynn, who had left Arlington and gone to Prince William County and had taken over, working with people like Alex Imes, who was in Arlington County now. Those were allies that I had worked closely with on an Amazon deal. And I said, hey, guys, why don't we figure out how to work all together? And, and everyone said, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try it. So we pulled in all the 10 jurisdictions in Northern Virginia and sat down with Buddy and, and said, hey, look, 
this is not going to be perfect. We're not going to try to make it perfect. We're going to just try to make it good. And this is like a month after I was on board, we signed this alliance and, and we've been, we've done it uh, for a year now. And it has been a spectacular success for all of us. There's not a person that is in this alliance that is not delighted uh, that they are part of the alliance. It has made a big difference to all of us. And I could talk about some of the things that we've done, but the bottom line is that that alliance, I believe, is the beginning of uniting the entire Washington, D.C. region. Because after we did our alliance, I think four or five months later, there was all of a sudden an alliance in suburban Maryland led by David Iannucci from Prince George's County, working with Ben Wu and the other guys over, you know, on that side of the river. Now we have the connected DMV and we're talking about putting together a regional economic development strategy. So I think that the thing that I've dreamed of, which is this united region, and why I've been dreaming of this is that this is what I do know. We're in a global competition. Everybody thinks we're in a regional competition. Wrong. I realized this years ago. I was in management consulting before I came back to the public sector to work for Mayor Gray. When I took that job in January 2011, you know, the economy was not in great shape. But this is what I did know. I did know that Maryland was not my competition and Northern Virginia wasn't my competition. My competition was Shanghai. My competition was London. My competition was Tel Aviv, Bangalore, Mumbai. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong if you're in economic development in a place like ours and you think that you're competing against a neighbor. That's just silly. You're never going to win that way. You got to up your game. And if you're going to up your game, you got to have a big team. And, and what we're doing is we're forming this big team. It's sort of like one of the things that I used to, when I played football, one of the things I used to admire about other teams is they were so much larger. My senior year, we only had 28 players. We still dominated our, our league. We went undefeated. Well, the reason why is because we played together so well. But the thing that I love was when they got an injured player, like, that, like one of their linemen got hurt, they had another lineman. And, then, and if that lineman got hurt, they had another lineman. They had all these replacements. When you're just like, you know, you got 28 people, you run out of people. Look, we can't win. We're going to run out of people when we get into competitions if we're just using our resources. So having this bigger team, having this bigger scope has really changed how we play the game and how many players are in the game. So instead of a 1.2 million population, I talk about a 2 million plus population. Instead of 118 million square feet, I talk about 200 plus million square feet. Listen, I'm sorry, Fairfax is a cool place to go. Look, okay, we have Mosaic, but you know what? Have you ever been to King Street in Alexandria? Oh, that's having a good time. I'm just saying that you really are able to do more when you are bigger that way. And you know, Victor, nothing succeeds like success. So the successes you've had have laid the groundwork for the region to start coming together and pursue more successes. To your point, it is a global environment and you drive 100 miles from this city. Most people don't know the boundaries and the jurisdictions, let alone internationally. Now, I'm just wondering, though, we've been through for the past six months a major shift in at least the way organizations are working right now. What do you foresee with respect to economic development, whether from an office perspective or just in general with respect to the competitiveness of this region? So there, there was something that had changed in, in the last four or five years in economic development anyway, which is a focus and a need to think about talent. And really the talent pipeline and that whole strategy, which Stephen Murray of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership really crafted 
did an incredible job of crafting that, that we've taken advantage of in the state of Virginia. That piece became a critical piece for not just Amazon, but for all the other companies that would be looking at Northern Virginia as a location. And actually, forget Northern Virginia, just all of the D.C. region, because you get to take advantage of those institutions also. So that's one thing that changed, and that was before COVID. Boy, when COVID hit, all of a sudden, accessing talent became harder because talent couldn't visit, and you couldn't visit talent. So all of a sudden, you have this virtual world that we're working in. And I think that what we've done is we've actually, with our Northern Virginia Economic Development Alliance, we've done a couple of things. We now have a joint website. It has a joint brand on uh, Nova Innovation Lives Here, which is what we use to attract Amazon. Every jurisdiction, all 10, are on that website. And all the jobs that are available in Northern Virginia, which are about 80,000 right now in Northern Virginia that are available, are all on that site. And many of the employers are mapped on that site. So they can see the jobs, they can see where it is. We have selected community tools on there, but all of this, this digital tool has become a center for us. We get about 20 to 25,000 hits there a month. So it gets a lot of traffic and we drive that traffic from this local market, but mostly from other markets, Boston, Cambridge, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, New York, and Austin, Texas. So those are the primary markets that we're driving traffic from there to here to look at us because there are what I call, we call our competitive markets. But even during that, I mean, even though we had all of that going on, we created these virtual career fairs. Uh, we had one that was focused on college students in May. We had one focused on tech professionals mid-career in uh, July. And then we had one on diversity with the Hispanic Chamber in, at the end of July. So we're using these digital platforms, these virtual career fairs to, to go after talent. To go after companies is a whole nother thing. We have these webinar series that we do that are really crafted for each market. But then we also have COVID. So we had to help companies that were here that were hurting. So we created this 12 installment workshop series now. We're on number 11 that dealt with pivoting your company, you know, setting yourself up for growth, accessing capital, all the things that companies need. But we did that as a team. And somebody said, how did you afford that? We shared the load. We shared the cost. How did you produce that? We shared the cost. No one had to take the burden on alone. Everybody shared the, the burden, which made it actually even more powerful. So the point I want to make is that that collaborative environment actually has played into what's in the future for economic development. Because see, right now, people are really realizing this. Yeah, working at home is okay, but you know what? I really need to get to the office. I really need to collaborate. I really need to work with my people. I've been stymied in some ways because I can't use my whiteboard. I used to have team members impromptu come in my office, go to my whiteboard and put things on my whiteboard, ideas that they have. But we can't whiteboard that way. So it's harder to collaborate. How do you coach a young person to, for growth in your organization if you don't see them, if you don't talk to them, if you don't know what they're going through? I mean, to me, that's the missing piece. That's why we have to get back to the office. So to answer your question, in brief, we will be back in the office. And I do not think that there is going to be a massive exodus from office space. I think there's going to be some shifting around. I think there will be some spreading out within existing footprints. I think on par, I think it's going to work out where this countervailing force of needing to socially distance, needing to have more people in the office is going to balance out that stay at home. And I think that this hybrid model which I think can ultimately work for all of us in a big way. 
less commuting days. I mean, just imagine this. I was just thinking about this. What if I only commuted three days a week? Oh my God, my, my life would be different. And on the other two days, use Zoom or work from home. I mean, what about that? What is that like? And by the way, how would that be for my younger staff that has children? How's that for my older staff that has a massive commute because they bought a house 40 miles away or 50 miles away? My, my, my point is, I think that all of this is going to shake out in a very positive way. What I like to remind people of is, if you look back at the last pandemic, which was 1918. Wasn't around then, Victor. Pardon me? I wasn't around then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, w- I wasn't either. But if you read the history, okay, what came after that? The Roaring Twenties, okay? Some of the greatest economic expansion in the history of our country. See, we've been through things like this before. We just don't remember. Like you said, we were not alive. Many of our parents weren't even alive at that time. So given the context, this feels new to us. We we have some fears that I think are unfounded. And again, my positive nature kicks in. And I tell my team and I tell companies this. Okay, here we go. After 9-11, people told me I'm never going to fly again. I say, yeah, right. More people were flying after 9-11. Listen, pre-COVID, there were more people flying than ever before in the history of man. I mean, ever before in the history of the human race. So what happened between 9-11 and 2020, something happened. We adjusted. We put in TSA, made us feel more secure. We put in scanning bags, which made us feel more secure. We put in dogs, you know, to sniff bags. We did things. We put in bionic, I mean, bio recognition. I mean, my handprint gets me back in the country instead of somebody going through my passport. We adjusted. That's what we're going to do. Tall buildings. Not going to be another tall building built again ever. That's what they said after 9-11. I had people tell me this. Never going to happen again. More tall buildings have been built since 9-11 than ever before in the history of man. Since 9-11, what happened? We adjusted. We put in systems to protect our buildings. We put in systems to protect our airports. We put in systems to protect the, 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 actually, we put people on planes to watch the planes. I mean, remember air marshals? I mean, come on. We do the things that we need to do to adjust. This is what Americans do the best. We innovate. We are creative. We have minds from all around the world. And those minds come here to create this innovation. A lot of our, a lot of our greatest inventions did not come from people who were born in America. Let's get a clue. Zoom was made by a guy that came from China. And by the way, I love some Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to tell you, Victor, I'm going to take a clip these past five minutes and I'm going to replay it for myself because it is wonderful hearing your optimism, but optimism rooted in reality, rooted in experience, whether the 1918 pandemic or 9-11 or whatever other crisis in that there are opportunities. There are people like you that have an optimistic view work hard at it, and build even stronger and better than things were before. So I absolutely love that perspective. Now, we'd love to start wrapping up with getting some of your thoughts. If you were to look back and give give advice to what was a very smart, very hardworking young Victor with respect to the future of professional life, what advice would you give to a younger Victor or to a younger leader wanting to become successful as you are, Victor. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate being considered successful. Knowing you, I know you have many more challenges ahead and 
uh, mountains you want to climb, Victor, but anyone that looks at your track record will see Thank Thank you. lots and lots of successes. Thank you. Thank you. So this is the advice that I would give to either a younger me or a person that's interested in pursuing a path like this. One of the things that I would do is I would do a harder evaluation on what graduate school I went to. I loved MIT. I loved course 11, which is the urban studies is where I did department of urban studies and planning. I loved it. I loved my coursework. I had a great time. However, I would have done more courses in the Sloan school, the business school or at HBS, Harvard business school. I took a course in, in financing economic development, the Kennedy school, but I think that I would have probably enjoyed a deeper understanding of business management. And probably the other thing that I would have done is when I went to Wall Street, I probably would tell myself to stay longer. And what I'm saying, I guess, if I'm going to encapsulate what I'm saying is give as much time to the private sector as you give to the public sector if you're going to do the kind of work that I do. Because one of the reasons that I'm able to help companies is that number one, I listen to them, which I think is the primary thing. But number two, I do understand the problem they're trying to solve. If I can diagram the problem, I can actually, from, from my perspective, provide the support that I need to, to solve it. I cannot tell Microsoft how to create a, a successful software program. But if Microsoft, like it has recently done, is going to make a decision for corporate headquarters and I'm competing against another jurisdiction, uh, well, they decided to put their uh, 400,000 square foot research and development facility with 1,500 employees in Fairfax County. Well, if they're going to make that kind of decision, I I have to listen to them and understand them better. And that's why I'm thinking that even with the knowledge that I have, I would have liked to have more. And and I think that's only because I just want to win more. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to I want to figure out how I to win the ones that I lost but but I but I think that I think that really giving a balance to business and public service I think is important and for those that are deep in the business I would suggest doing some work on the public service side just so that you understand like the people wonder why I'm so passionate about this work and I tell my team this and I and I've said this publicly when I save a job when I help create a job I save a household I, I create support for a household. Every job is a household. It's not a person. It is not a job. It is a household. And in many cases, it's multiple households. Like if you held a job in my neighborhood, you probably were not just supporting your family, but also maybe your cousin and your uncle. It just happens. It's just how families are. Everybody's not equally talented. Everybody's not equally resourced. And how you use these resources is really important. And these households, man, it makes a difference to these households. And that's what I think of every day. And that's why I approach it with so much passion. Well, Victor Hoskins, I am glad that you are on our team in this region. The purpose-driven leader that you are and the person that has achieved a lot of success for this entire region. One final question. When people ask you about leadership, Victor, are there any resources books, anything that you tend to refer people to that you got some of your leadership insights from? So there's a book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, and it's written by John Maxwell. And it is one of the best books on leadership that I've ever read. And I think it's one of those books that is a must read. There's a book that I've read over and over again, a classic, and it is Dale Carnegie. It is an amazing book. I'm still trying to become the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. 
between those two books, I think that there's so many relationship and value lessons and lessons about leadership and how about how to convince them or help somebody understand your perspective as you lead. Because the thing about leaders is that you don't always have the answer, but you know the direction. The thing about leaders is that you don't always know the exact solution, but you know the characteristics of that solution. So for you, it's the 80-20 rule. I'm not going to let perfect get in the way of good. I'm not going to sit here and fight for 100% when I got 80% and I know that's pretty good and I know that's right. And I think that's the hardest part about leadership. And I think those books, those two books in particular, help people sort out the issue of not having the exact, precise solution, but knowing the direction. Because life is about North Stars. It's about setting a goal and then pursuing it. And I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of things that I've tried to do actually come to fruition. And it's always happened through other people and working with other people. So Mahan, thank you so much for for really talking to me today. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Victor. I look forward to having many more conversations with you as I am sure both in Fairfax County and for this entire region, you will continue to achieve more on our behalf and have an impact on the communities that you were talking about. Thank you, Victor Hoskins. You're welcome. Thank you, Mahan. Have a great one. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.